Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Let's go ahead and pull up Dr. Navar's slides, and we're going to get right into this and start talking about the kidney. Well, I'm very pleased uh, to have the opportunity to uh, discuss uh, my uh, experience with uh, renal physiology and understanding renal hemodynamics. I thank Joe very much uh, for the invitation, and I hope I live up to his, uh, his uh, prime uh, presentation about me. Well, we know that uh, we know what the kidneys do, but we wonder how in the world they manage to do it all. And so we'll start with this idea. And uh, I'd like to quote something from E.H. Starling, a famous British physiologist many years ago. The kidney presents in the highest degree the phenomenon of sensibility, the power of reacting to various stimuli in a direction which is appropriate for the survival of the organism. A power of adaptation, which almost gives one the idea that its component parts must be endowed with intelligence. So the kidneys know how to regulate all our body fluids, but we don't always know exactly what it is. But just to provide a very brief review, remember that uh, the uh, intracellular volume compartment consists of about 25 liters of, of body water. And it's not a true compartment, but it's a collective volume of the fluid in all the cells through, throughout the body. However, the individual cells that regulate their own cell volume by controlling transport processes and regulating their effective solute content within the cell. In order to do this collectively, the extracellular volume, or as the, the great French uh, physiologist uh, said, uh, the uh, milieu interior is the extracellular volume, which consists of approximately of 15 liters in your body fluids. But it is a fluid throughout the compartment. It is in dynamic equilibrium. We call it the internal environment, and uh, it distributed mostly in, in, in the interstitial space, but with the remainder in the vascular compartment. And it must be regulated very precisely, not only in terms of composition, total solid concentration, but also volume. So that's what Starling was referring to when he was talking about the uh, intriguing sensibility that it has. It has to know what your body fluid volumes are in order to control it properly. And it has to control every element of the composition of your body fluids correctly. Anywhere from pH to sodium concentrations to potassium, magnesium, calcium in the body, and the list goes on and on. And the kidneys have responsibilities for regulating all these different components. So um, we want to, uh, I, mean, I got a little too enthusiastic with the slides there. We want to remember that this interstitial fluid volume is, uh, is what's actually bathing the cells throughout the body. And the interstitial fluid volume is separated from the intracellular volume by, this, uh, by the cell membranes throughout the body. And these cell membranes are semi-permeable membranes in that they allow the, the transport of water to and from through the aquaporins that uh, we've heard so much about in, in recent years. Uh, and then through the transport processes that are regulating the intracellular solute content, the potassium, the sodium, the chloride. Uh, importantly, the potassium is very low inside the cells, but very high, um, very, very high inside the cells, but very low outside the cells in the interstitial fluid. And the sodium concentration is very low in the intracellular fluid, and, but high in the extracellular fluid. So all these transport processes across the the membrane here that uh, right across the cell membranes have to be responsible for maintaining this uh, differences in concentration of the electrolytes 
and other substances in order to maintain the electrical activity that the membranes have to have in order to have living cells. Over here you have the peritubular capillaries or, or the capillaries throughout the body. These capillaries are very different from the cell membrane capillaries. They do allow the ready exchange of various substances uh, in the extracellular fluid with the exception of the plasma proteins. They have a restriction of plasma proteins and that uh, restriction of the plasma proteins keeps the a higher plasma protein concentration in the blood plasma and that is what allows you to maintain your blood volume. If your protein concentrations get too dilute as they may during cardiopulmonary bypass, you may have trouble maintaining the blood volume distribution between the interstitial fluid and the blood plasma. Well going on, just remember that the osmolality is the critical driving force that's responsible for moving fluid across the cell membranes. It provides a collective measure of total solute concentration. And it is what we call a colligative property because it's dependent only on the number of molecules in solution, not their size, nature, or charge. And osmolality is useful whenever we consider body fluid shifts between, in particular, between the intracellular compartments and the extracellular compartment. The normal value for osmolality is approximately 290 milliosmos per liter of solution. And remember that any time the cell uh, osmolality is, is decreased for any reason, uh, the, the decrease in osmolality around the cells will cause the cell volumes to shift, and more water will go into the cell, causing cell swelling. If the concentration is too high, it'll cause cell shrinkage. Again, emphasizing the importance of maintaining the total osmolality, that is the solute concentration, of the body fluid during any sort of um, procedure, and today we're focusing on cardiopulmonary bypass, but it is very important to maintain the overall solute concentration. If uh, it is not properly maintained, in particular during uh, low concentrations, which we call uh, hypoosmolality, or more commonly uh, used term hyponatremia, which is, means low sodium concentration, uh, you will have fluid movement into the cells and of course you might have damage throughout the body, but in the brain it'll cause severe brain cell edema and damage to the uh, cognitive functions. Just uh, to kind of give an overall idea of all the factors that we're going to be talking about, just remember that uh, you're uh, the, the, we're using salt as an example, salt and water, because so much of the uh, extracellular fluid volume osmolality is consisting of sodium chloride. You have uh, the net balance of salt water determined by the intake and by the output. The only output that's regulated precisely is urinary excretion, so we have to ba balance the intake with the excretion. If the intake increases, your kidneys have to know uh, that they've, the volume's going up and get rid of more volume, likewise for sodium. And so this net balance of salt and water determine the extracellular fluid volume, and as I said, that extracellular fluid volume is distributed between the interstitial volume and the blood volume. And then this blood volume is very important in the long-term control of cardiac output and arterial pressure. This is an area of research that my former mentor, Arthur Guyton, uh, worked on for many, many years. And in particular, uh, the very important relationship between arterial pressure and the renal excretion of salt water. Superimposed upon this specific relationship between the arterial pressure and the renal excretion of salt and water. We have a multitude of hormone systems that respond to various signals throughout the body, 
and sends signals to the kidneys. And of course, the central nervous system that sends uh, sympathetic nerve fibers to the kidney to regulate vascular and tubular transport function. So these poor kidneys have to end up uh, having to uh, take care of uh, regulating not only the volume, but the composition of the entire extracellular fluid volume uh, through control of uh, intrarenal mechanisms which respond to the arterial pressure, the blood composition, the neural inputs, and the hormonal signals coming into the body, into the kidneys. And by doing so, it will regulate not only the uh, change in volume of the venous effluent, but the change in composition. And the kidney itself also releases certain hormones, most notably uh, the renin that's released by the kidney to uh, affect other parts of the body. So ways of communicating uh, between the kidneys and the other parts of the body. Okay, of course, the urine, we all think of, of the kidneys uh, important function to, uh, to form urine, but it's really the waste products. So there's no such thing as normal urine composition, but only appropriate urine composition for the condition of the patient. And of course, a, a little lymph that helps to not only return blood to the circulation. So uh, that lymph will return proteins to the circulation and also have uh, certain hormones involved. In order to do this, it has to require a very high amount of blood flow going through the kidneys. And so we uh, think in terms of the, uh, the percentage of the cardiac output that's going through the kidneys as the renal fraction. And the renal fraction may be as high as, uh, excuse me, as, as high as 20% uh, of the cardiac output. So again, a very important issue related to cardiopulmonary bypass, you've got to keep an adequately, appropriately high blood flow going through the kidneys in order to maintain kidney function. So again, this renal fraction is the fraction of the blood flow going to the kidney, the fraction of the cardiac output going to the kidneys, and under normal conditions is 20%, but it can fall drastically during uh, hemorrhage, trauma, high sympathetic activity, um, or various uh, other uh, insults. Uh, just to put it in, con in, in the contrast, uh, the weight of, the both, of both kidneys in a 70 kilogram person is only about 300 grams. So if you divide the 1,200 milliliters per minute by the 300 grams, it comes out to be about 4 milliliters per minute per gram, which is an extraordinarily high blood flow per unit weight of the, of the organ. It, it does so uh, certainly for the purpose of producing uh, adequate oxygen to the various tissues. Uh, and uh, the oxygen consumption is very high, approximately uh, 16 to, to, to 20 milliliters per minute uh, for the normal blood flow. Uh, but uh, the important aspect of cardiac op of, uh, oxygen consumption is, of course, that it's distributed throughout the entire tissue, and the oxygen is necessary to maintain normal, uh, normal viability of all the different uh, cells in the body, but in particular uh, to... Uh, to provide adequate oxygenation to the very substantial transport processes that occur in the tubular system within the kidney. And uh, the, uh, the, 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 the problem is it's been remarkable that, that the venous concentration isn't lower than it is of oxygen levels. Uh, it's only about between one and two milliliters of oxygen uh, tension uh, difference between the arterial blood and the venous blood. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, remarkable because it uses a tremendous amount of basal of oxygen consumption. So oxygen consumption can be divided into basal oxygen consumption, 
which is dependent on the total uh, oxygen uh, uh, required by, by the cells, for example, the cells of the, of the vasculature. And then the oxygen consumption required of the uh, transport systems, uh, which is primarily dependent on the sodium potassium ATPase of the basolateral membranes of, of the cells in the, in the tubular tubules. And, uh, and the more that is filtered of oxygen, the more that is reabsorbed. And so the transport of oxygen consumption is, is highly dependent on the transport capability of the tubules. So without adequate oxygenation, you have severe problems to transport processes and, uh, and uh, as well as the vasculature. Uh, but it's important to remember that most of the blood flow is going to the cortex of the kidney, as I've indicated there, and then approximately 15% of the blood flow goes down deep into the medulla. So by going deep, deep into the medulla, it, um, uh, it, it provides nourishment to the medulla, but it's not enough oxygen to maintain the PO2 at the same levels that the PO2 is maintained in the cortex. And I'll show you this what I'm talking about. One of the reasons this occurs is because of the close uh, continuity between the arterial system and the venous system, close, uh, closeness. And so uh, much of the oxygen that comes in the arterial blood gets shunted across into the venous components that are flowing alongside. And that occurs not only in the cortex through the venous arterial oxygen sumps, but also occurs in the medulla uh, between the ascending and descending uh, uh, ascending and descending vasa recta, and uh, as the ascending descending vasa recta bring uh, blood flow down to the medulla, there's there are oxygen sunk, uh, shunts that are occurring across uh, this uh, system, so that again the medullary oxygen tension in the lower part of the medulla is quite low compared to uh, oxygen tension in other parts of the body and even in the cortex. So that's an important consideration that is highly dependent on blood flow. And so the old model was very simple, uh, as uh, pointed out in a recent review article. The old model is uh, the blood flow goes in there and, and just like it does in other tissues, provides tissue PO2, and, you, and then you have the glomerular filtration rate that governs the total tubular reabsorption. And, and that gives you the total oxygen consumption. But in fact, it's much more complex than that. The blood flow has to go, uh, has to undergo this AV shunting that occurs. And because of this AV shunting, uh, the intra-tissue levels, the tissue PO2 is much lower than you might predict on the basis of the oxygen tension of the arterial blood going into the kidneys. And so you do have to pro provide adequate support for tubular uh, transport processes through tr tubular uh, oxygen consumption and through the vascular wall properties, which is the vascular wall oxygen consumption. Altogether, these determine the actual tissue PO2 in the cortex. And then you have further AV shunting in the medulla. So there is a certain amount of shunting no matter what, where, what part of the kidney you're talking about. And so this, when the blood flow goes very low, you have, uh, you, you, you can uh, compensate to a certain extent by less AV oxygen shunting, but it, it, is, uh, it, it is not sufficient to completely compensate. So when the blood flow gets very low, you still have the shunting, and then you have less uh, AV uh, oxygen delivered to the tissues. 
And uh, this slide uh, from a, 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 the recent article I mentioned from 2008 uh, had, um, this, is, this is a data slide, but the top cortical blood flow is the top one. And uh, the next one is uh, PO2, the cortex, and then medullary blood flow, which is much lower than cortical blood flow, <coughs> and the PO2 of the medulla. And so whenever the cortical blood flow uh, goes down, you will have a lower oxygen tension in the cortex. And even if the medullary blood flow is maintained, because it's very low in the first place, so there are mechanisms that help maintain the, the medullary blood flow uh, from falling as low as the cortical blood flow, relatively speaking. Uh, but because it, it derives its oxygen from the circulation going through the cortex first, uh, to, to the preglomerular vessels anyway, uh, the medullary oxygen tension is also going to fall. So again, maintaining adequate blood flow and adequate oxygen tension in the perfusate is very important to maintaining the ad adequate PO2 levels in the kidney. Uh, the kidneys can tolerate a certain degree of reduction in PO2 levels, but if it goes too low, then you start getting cell uh, injury. So let's, uh, let's pick up the action there uh, on, on how the arterial blood is distributed. Uh, as uh, has been shown through a number of studies, this is uh, just the architecture of the, of the arterial vasculature uh, shown here, and all those little white specks are individual glomeruli. But the blood flow is distributed through a non-anastomotic system of arterial system that break down into the arteries, the inter, uh, interlobar, the arcuate, the interlobular, and then the afferent arterioles that finally deliver blood flow to the afferent arterial. And so here's a breakdown uh, of an of of, uh, arterial tree in the orange coming in there. And uh, it, this, this gives rise to an afferent arterial. And that afferent arterial then gives rise to uh, the glomerular capillaries, and it's at the glomerular capillaries that the major action is present. Okay, so remember that uh, it's a very complicated nephrovascular system. Here are the tubules, the tubules that are present there, and uh, this is the vasculature. The second, the middle panel shows the vasculature, uh, and showing the medulla going down deep into the medulla. There's still leftover medulla down at the bottom. And then when you put it all together, you have the inter, uh, interaction between the peritubular capillaries of the postglomerular circulation and the tubules. And then you have this interaction that occurs throughout the cortex, and then a separate type of interaction that occurs uh, in the vasorecta that go down deep into the medulla. You stuck? Okay, just to show you uh, what's happening there from one of the uh, afferent arterioles give, that gives rise uh, to the uh, glomerular capillaries, the afferent arterial comes into the glomerular capillaries and there it distributes itself uh, throughout the glomerular capillaries and then after it goes to the glomerular capillaries, it forms the efferent arterial. So there's, uh, in, in, human, in human kidneys, there's approximately 10,000 of these glomeruli uh, per gram of kidney weight. And here's a blown up section of a single glomerular capillary. Here you are, the blood flow is going into the afferent arterial, and then it distributes itself through a manifold sort of process, which then uh, goes through the various parts of the, of, the, of the kidney, various lobules within the glomerular capillary, and these lobules then coalesce back into a, 
a vascular compartment, if you will, before it goes on to the efferent arterial, which gives rise in the cortex to the peritubular capillaries and in the medulla uh, or in the juxtamedullary portion of the, of the kidney to the vasorecta. Within each glomerular capillary, you can see the exquisite nature of these glomerular capillaries and understanding uh, how you could, might could have damage of various sorts. Uh, the, the, the filtrate within the plasma in the individual blood vessels, glomerular capillaries, has to filter across this scheme through the endothelial fenestrations of the endothelium, across the basement membrane, and through the slit of, of the porocytes in order to gain access to Bowman space and the tubules. So you can imagine how this sophisticated system could, again, be easily injured. If these cells are injured and swell, you'll markedly decrease the filtering capability of the kidneys. So they have to maintain the proper integrity. And again, you can understand these individual glomerulopolocytes that uh, are lifted above the basement membrane but send foot processes down into the basement membrane uh, have to be uh, maintained adequate. Any type of damage to these uh, foot processes can markedly reduce the sizes of these slit diaphragms. So again, a very sophisticated filtering system existing in each and uh, every one of your glomerular capillaries, which uh, is only about uh, a million uh, per kidney. So just to reiterate and recapitulate that uh, you have to understand that there's an endothelial glycocalyx that is a, a, a extracellular a process of, uh, of uh, very complex uh, mucopolysaccharides and proteins, uh, and then goes through the slit diaphragms of the endothelium across the basement membrane uh, in between these uh, podocyte foot processes uh, and then gain, gain uh, access to the, uh, the uh, Bowman space, which then goes on into the proximal tubule. So the importance of the glomerular capillaries in maintaining a high level of impermeability to proteins is, uh, cannot be overemphasized because if uh, an excess amount of proteins are filtered into the tubules, uh, you get proteinuria, and that's usually uh, an early, one of the earliest signs of renal injury that you have. Um, and it's been shown that there's also a charge uh, on the membranes. Uh, there's still controversy as to how important that charge is, but it has been shown that molecules that have uh, neutral, that is no charge, um, uh, artificial molecules uh, that are synthetic molecules that do not have a charge uh, can be filtered more readily than uh, molecules that have a negative charge. And we know that most of the circulating proteins in the plasma, such as albumin, uh, do have a negative charge. So both the negative charge as well as its large size prevents the albumin from going across the cell membrane. Here's the charge on the, on the albumin. And uh, the difference between that and the predicted passage, if there was no negative charge on it, is substantial, as you can see. It could vary from less than 1% to, to close to 20%. So both the uh, negative charges on the gel and the basal membrane um, and through, throughout the uh, system uh, repel not only the red blood cells but the, but the uh, 
large protein molecules from permeating into Bowman space. So this is an uh, important uh, knowledge to, to maintain at all times because uh, w without this, you just simply would not have been able to maintain your plasma proteins. And uh, more recent studies, uh, especially as it relates to the uh, to, to, to the uh, glomerula of human kidneys. Uh, human kidneys seem to be a little bit different from the animal uh, that we study in experimental studies. The blood goes in, makes a right angle turn right into the glomeruli, and at this point then, there is a, a afferent vascular con uh, compartment that kind of is responsible for mixing up the blood so that all parts of the, of the glomerular tube lobule go, all parts uh, uh, go into the uh, various segments of the glomerular capillary, and, and that allows you to distribute the blood evenly. And then there's also an efferent vascular compartment that gathers all the blood from the various branches throughout the kidney and uh, then distributes on to the efferent arterial. So that high, the, so there's a combination of forces. There's, a, there's a two, two major forces that we have to consider in terms of the amount of fluid that's filtering across the glomerular membrane. First of all, you have the net hydrostatic pressure, which is the main driving force uh, causing the fluid movement from inside the glomerular capillaries uh, into, the, into the Bowman space. And that's maybe as much as uh, 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury pressure. So that's driving, that's the main driving force for make, moving the fluid into the kidney into the Bowman space, but it's, con it, it's counteracted by the colloid osmotic pressure or of, the, of the plasma. And it's that high colloid osmotic pressure of the plasma that offsets a very large percentage of the hydrostatic pressure. Not only that, because of the fluid that is filtered is protein-free, then the proteins continuously increase their concentration as they traverse the glomerular capillaries, and then as they traverse the glomerular capillaries, they'll go on into the efferent arterial at a much higher colloid osmotic pressure. So one has to consider the average colloid osmotic pressure within the glomerular capillaries, which again is in the range of about 30 millimeters of mercury for human kidneys. So collectively, you have what we call the net or effective filtration pressure. You see the effect that net or effective filtration pressure is the hydrostatic pressure gradient minus the colloid osmotic pressure, leaving a relatively small value to be actually responsible for the driving force across the fluid. So you can imagine that a small decrease in this effective filtration pressure caused by a small decrease in, in hydrostatic pressure could cause a relatively larger change in GFR, which is a, a rate of filtration of fluid into Bowman space. So when we put all these together, we have this scheme uh, that I've shown in various textbooks uh, that we have the high colon osmotic pressure coming into the kidneys, uh, being concentrated as they traverse the glomerular capillaries, and then the effective filtration pressure uh, is, a, as I said, approximately nine millimeters of mercury, and that effective filtration pressure uh, multiplied by the filtration coefficient of the individual glomerular capillaries themselves gives you the glomerular filtration rate. Now, as the fluid then goes into the peritubular capillaries, which surround the tubules, uh, it go goes in at a very high colloid osmotic pressure. And that high colloid osmotic pressure allows you to reabsorb the fluid that is being transported by the tubules back into the interstitial spaces. 
So it's a very important scheme that occurs where in, in, the, in the glomerular capillaries, the hydrostatic pressure predominates. That allows the filtration to occur. And then the cholosmotic pressure predominates in the peritubic capillaries, and that allows, that allows the fluid to be reabsorbed back into the capillaries and out in the renal vein. And so you can imagine how it's very important to maintain these forces and flows at a normal or op appropriate, optimal level in order to have uh, and support the overall tubular transport characteristics of the, of the tubules. So here you have uh, all these uh, glomeruli, as I said, about 10,000 per gram of kidney weight, uh, giving rise to proximal convoluted tubules, where about 60% of the salt and water is reabsorbed. Uh, and then going on to the rest of the nephron, which includes the uh, proximal straight tubule, the descending lupa henle, the ascending lupa henle, where another uh, so 20, 30% of the salt is reabsorbed, and, and, and then the distal convoluted tubule leading to the cortical collecting duct and the medullary collecting duct, and which allows you to end up properly regulating and reabsorbing what is necessary for the kidneys to uh, appropriately maintain your, your uh, body fluid composition and excreting uh, in, in less than about 1% of the salt and water that is filtered in, in the, in the uh, urine. So it's a very complicated scheme, uh, but it seems to do the job, so we have to understand how it works. All of these forces that I mentioned, both at the glomerular and the peritubular capillary, have to be regulated properly in terms of both blood flow and pressures. To do that, we divide the renal vascular resistance. Collectively, the renal vascular resistance can be thought of as to have being, respons uh, being uh, consisting of the forces and uh, influences of the renal nerves, the influences of the hormones and plasma composition, and also the intrinsic control mechanisms. Uh, these intrinsic control mechanisms are very important. Uh, they're responsible for autoregulation. And we'll be discussing our regulation in, in some detail because it's, it's quite important to the scene. So this regulation of renal vascular resistance is, is important. And it, uh, the arterial pressure divided by the vascular resistance gives you the renal blood flow that occurs as overall. But we know that it's distributed throughout the different parts of the kidney. So here's a, a, pressure, comp, a pressure profile. Uh, the, the large pressure drop along the afferent arterioles because of the resistance consisting of the afferent arterioles, and then you have the maintenance of glomerular pressure within the glomerular capillaries, then the pressure falling along the efferent arterial and down to the peritubic capillaries when you have the reabsorption, and so collectively these uh, are very important in maintaining both the afferent arterial resistance as well as the efferent arterial resistance. And uh, again, just for those of you that want to know numbers, blood flow through the kidneys about 1.2 uh, liters per minute or 1,200 milliliters per minute. Of that, uh, about 680 milliliters per minute are plasma. From that plasma, about 130 milliliters per minute are filtered. And that filtration fraction is, again, about 20%. So that gives you an idea of, of the uh, forces that are going on, but, you, but in order to do that, you have to have regulation. Regulation of all these vascular smooth muscle cells throughout the, throughout the vasculature of the kidney 
that have to constrict and dilate appropriately to maintain these forces. So here's an example of afferent arterials lined up going right into the the glomerular capillaries within the, the renal corpuscle. And, uh, and likewise, there's also vascular smooth muscles in the efferent arterioles. So those vascular smooth muscles really, in many ways, are vascular smooth muscles very similar to those throughout your body. And uh, calcium plays a very important role in maintaining the vascular tone and in responding to various signals through various calcium channels. You also have an, a multitude of receptor-operated channels that regulate uh, cyclic GMP, for example, cyclic AMP, uh, phospholipase uh, C, and, and many other intracellular enzymes and uh, drivers uh, the, of the active myosin light chain kinase, and, and, uh, which determine the amount of phosphorylated myosin light chain and the tension development. So when calcium levels are reduced by blocking the calcium channels, you have vasodilation. Uh, when the calcium channels are upregulated through receptor-operated channels or voltage-operated channels, then you have more calcium, uh, also calcium released from the, from the intracellular stores, uh, which can all contribute to the uh, binding of calcium commodulin and then driving the, the, the tension development. So this occurs uh, throughout the vasculature system, uh, and uh, different hormones and different systems play slightly different roles in the various parts of the vasculature, and that's what, uh, again, uh, we spend a lot of time trying to understand these differences. So you can then uh, analyze it and say, okay, when preglomerular constricts, when an agent or substance causing preglomerular constriction, that's going to cause reduction in blood flow, but reduction in glomerular pressure as well, and reduction in glomerular filtration rate, and reduction in peritubular capillary and interstitial pressure. So high preglomerular constriction is associated with reduction in blood flow, reduction in filtration rate, and accordingly reduction in sodium excretion and urine flow. Quite often you have agents that cause combined preglomerular and efferent constriction, and when that occurs you may have uh, either no change or slight increases in glomerular pressure. You may have increases in glomerular chloroosmotic pressure, uh, less percent change in GFR than blood flow, and you'll still have a peritubular capillary and decreases in renal interstitial pressure, which again is consistent with uh, augmentation of reabsorption rate and reduction in urine flow and sodium excretion. And then you can have uh, regulation or patho either physiological or pathological regulation of the filtration coefficient. For example, anything that makes the basement membrane thicker, or anything that uh, shuts down the endothelial fenestrations or the slit diaphragms can decrease the filtration coefficient, which will cause decreases in GFR. And uh, under those conditions, there may be some changes in glomerular pressure caused by regulatory mechanisms, which I'll be discussing, but at overall less change in blood flow than GFR. And under those conditions, you have maintenance of peritubular capillary and renal interstitial pressure. So it is a complex system that requires, auto that requires control by many systems other than uh, uh, that, that include both the intrinsic and extrinsic. Do you want to have a break and see if there's any questions, or you want to go on? Um, 
No, I think we can. I think we can go on. What do you think? Okay. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think. Uh, I don't want to just be the one talking all the time, but we'll we'll, we'll that'll change. Well, what would you like to do? No, I think it's fine. If anybody wants, if anybody has no any, one is uh, saying anything. We're we're just keep gaining okay. people watching. So okay. everybody's watching. If anybody feels like we need to take a break, just let us know online. But I think we should keep going unless you don't want no, to. No, this is fine. Now we're going to the regulation that occurs. And in particular, a very important part of regulation is auto regulation. And we're going to talk about this because there's a combination of two important uh, categories. We call intrinsic control mechanisms. That is, those mechanisms that are internal to the kidney. Uh, we often refer to that as auto regulation. Uh, we also talk about it in terms of paracrine factors because there may be more than one factor influencing autoregulation. And I also mentioned this very fascinating system that I've been studying for better than 30 years, which we call the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism. But uh, in particular, under conditions where you might have cardiopulmonary bypass, you might have a, a number, a myriad of extrinsic factors that play an important role in influencing what's happening to the kidney. And that may be not only the physiological mechanism, but the pathophysiological mechanisms that could uh, be responsible for altering uh, kidney function and uh, making it be less than appropriate. So let's uh, think in terms of the intrinsic mechanisms. And the first intrinsic mechanism that I want to emphasize is uh, the autoregulation. And autoregulation over a period of many years has been proven, has been studied by uh, using an artificial system in which you uh, measure the renal blood flow directly and uh, either measure the renal arterial pressure uh, directly through a a series of uh, clamps. And so luckily for many of us, we have a wide range of autoregulation. This is called the autoregulatory range. And over this autoregulatory range, uh, changes, physiological alterations in arterial pressure will lead to alterations in intrarenal function mm-hmm. such that blood flow remains normal, constant. We, we call it constant because there is this plateau. And then once you go below a certain pressure around 75 millimeters of mercury for human subjects, then after that, your autoregulatory capability is exhausted, and then you have a decrease in renal blood flow as blood pressure falls. What's unique about the autoregulatory mechanism is that it seems to be focused primarily in regulating the afferent arterial resistance. This is the afferent arterial resistance as it goes into the glomerular capillaries. And if the blood pressure falls, the afferent arterial resistance goes up. If the pressure goes up, the afferent arterial goes down. And this allows you not only to maintain renal blood flow constant over this range, but it also allows you to maintain glomerular filtration rate constant sometimes. And it does that by maintaining the glomerular pressure as well as the, uh, and then it subsequently that, it leads to regulation of proximal tubular pressure, capillary pressure, and even interstitial fluid pressure. So that's the autoregulatory mechanism, a very exquisite system. Over this range, the efferent arterial resistance is maintained relatively stable, but at lower arterial pressures, you might have increases in efferent resistance which can occur um, in response to changes that occur in the intrarenal renin uh, angiotensin system. So that our regulatory mechanism has two components that's very important. One is the myogenic uh, component, uh, which occurs in vascular uh, tissue throughout the body, in many different parts of the body. 
And this myogenic mechanism is, is quite intriguing in the sense that every time you have a stretching of the vessel wall by, uh, by for example, increases in internal pressure, uh, then there increases tension, there's an increase in tension, uh, or, or what we call tangential tension or hoop stress uh, on the vessel wall. This hoop stress stimulates tension receptors, which we're still uh, trying to understand, but they seem to be geared to uh, calcium entry, and uh, these tension re receptors can either dilate or con uh, cause either dilation or constriction. Uh, and so if the pressure goes up, uh, there's a, a te the, the tension receptors then lead to constriction, uh, which allows you to lower the radius of the blood vessels uh, and bringing the blood flow back down to normal or toward normal. So that's your myogenic response that is very similar to what occurs throughout the other parts of the body. But in the kidney, you have this very fascinating system uh, that, is, uh, that shows that there's a very important interrelationship between the, macula, between the tubules and the vasculature. And this feedback occurs at the level of the macula densa, which, is, um, which uh, are cells that are unique uh, and at the end of the ascending lupa henle, and these unique cells then send signals to the afferent arterial, and those signals to the afferent arterial cause either constriction or dilation. These have been studied for a number of years using what we call micropuncture techniques. And by studying micro micropuncture, we can put pipettes in the proximal tubule. Uh, we can block the tubule, and then we can put perfusion pipettes and regulate the amount of fluid going to the rest of the nephron. And just in that one nephron, then we can study the effects of increases or decreases in flow or changes in composition. And it has been shown over a period of years that this autoregulation mechanism is, is reduced markedly uh, when, the block, when there's blockade of flow to the rest of the nephron segment. So when there's reduced flow due to blockade of flow through the macular densa, then you have vasodilation of the afferent arterial and reduced capability to autoregulate. Likewise, if we increase the flow too hard, then you have an autoregulation that occurs at a lower level. So there is evidence that the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism provides an important additional regulatory mechanism that responds to the signals. Uh, and this is a true negative feedback system that we study in physiology in many, in many systems. That is, in response to, for example, an increase in arterial pressure, you, you would transiently have an increase in glomerular pressure and plasma flow. Then you would have... A, an increase in filtration rate, and you would have part of that increase in filtration rate would have been, will be reabsorbed through the process of glomerular tubular balance, but you'll still have increases in flow to the rest of the nephron, and so as the flow goes through the assay and lupa Henle, there are flow-related changes in osmolality and sodium chloride concentration, which signal these macular denser cells, cells that I showed you uh, to uh, sense the change, and then transmit a signal from the macular densa to the afferent arterial in a direction opposite to that effect caused by the change in arterial pressure. So the arterial pressure goes up, the preglomerular resistance goes up uh, in order to bring the glomerular pressure and plasma flow back down. 
If the arterial pressure goes down, the preglomerular resistance goes down so that the glomerular pressure and plasma flow can come back to normal. That helps maintain the filtration rate, which allows you to maintain normal transport capabilities throughout the nephron. So we'll be talking primarily about these mechanisms that, that lead to the changes in uh, vascular resistance. But superimposed uh, uh, on that normal autoregulatory mechanism, we, we, we see that this is a very dynamic mechanism that is uh, fully adjustable in response to the uh, volume and demands of the body. When you have a, uh, a high extracellular fluid volume that might occur under conditions such as this, the sensitivity of the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism is markedly reduced. And that occurs when the nitric oxide levels go up, when there's high prostaglandin levels, when there's calcium channel blockade. And when there's high angiotensin levels, you might have then a high sensitivity of the tubular feedback mechanism, allowing you to have a reduced delivery of salt water to the rest of the nephron for any given GFR. This occurs under conditions where you want to be able to uh, retain as much of your salt and body fluid as, 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 you, as possible, and that occurs by various factors that are associated primarily with uh, high levels of angiotensin II, that is activation of the angiotensin system, and uh, other systems that we'll, we'll discuss uh, shortly. So this is a they're very important intrarenal mechanism that is capable of maintaining normal perfusion rate, GFR, and transport capabilities under optimal or normal physiological conditions. But superimpose on that, you have various factors that may disrupt this uh, unique balance. So the, the autoregulation of the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism maintain the hemodynamic inputs in balance with tubular metabolic function. And, 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 and that's a very important normal physiological function, but there are acute circumstances that may be superimposed that influence the ability to properly autoregulate. And these are all these various uh, hormones uh, uh, resulting from uh, a high activity of, uh, of uh, say, a, adrenal release of uh, epinephrine, high levels of angiotensin II when the renal angiotensin system is stimulated, uh, a, a myriad of other uh, vasoconstrictor hormones, which I'll just list as endothelin plus others. And there's also a variety of vasodilator hormones that are produced either within the kidney or in other parts of the body, which may cause vasodilation stimuli. So all these factors then have to be thought of and brought into play when one considers what happens during altered physiological states or in pathological states. So you have various prostaglandins, uh, bradykinin, which is an important factor, atrial peptide coming from the heart, and uh, levels of nitric oxide produced by the endothelial cells. Well, obviously, the renal angiotensin system is a very important regulatory mechanism then. And, and the renal angiotensin system, interesting enough, is both an intrinsic and an extrinsic factor. It can be intrinsic in that you can have uh, alterations in the intrarenal uh, level of angiotensin II, but it can also be an extrinsic system in that angiotensin II may be formed within the circulation and influence the kidney as a circulating hormone. And uh, it's, 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 it's a complex system that requires a lecture in and of itself, 
But in response to a number of various factors, such as reduced sodium chloride intake, reduced arterial pressure, extracellular fluid volume depletion, any kind of stress or trauma will signal the baroreceptors and uh, through either the baroreceptors or the macula densa or the sympathetic nervous system to release uh, renin from the juxtaglomerular cells. That renin is uh, released in response to decreases in cytosolic calcium or increases in cyclic AMP. That renin then is then um, going uh, and then allows the cleavage of a decapeptide or angiotensin 1 uh, from a large molecule released by the liver primarily. And that angiotensin 1 is then acted on by angiotensin converting enzyme. And that angiotensin converting enzyme will form angiotensin 2. And that angiotensin 2 then uh, acts on a number of different receptors to cause biological actions throughout the body. And certainly very important actions within the kidney as well. So that uh, those juxtaglomerular cells, those granular cells of, uh, of the afferent arterial uh, will release renin, and that renin will form angiotensin II as, as shown. And um, with, without going into too great a detail, the elevated intrarenal angiotensin II levels can cause vascular and uh, afferent and efferent arterial dilation, can cause the increase, that's one of the factors that causes increased sensitivity of the tubular glomerular feedback mechanism. It can also decrease the filtration coefficient uh, so that for any given effective filtration pressure, there's less filtration rate. And it's been shown that the angiotensin II levels can also enhance proximal tubular reabsorption in various nephron segments. At first, the thought is it was thought to be only proximal tubule, but now that we know that, that it enhances uh, reabsorption rate in, in many different parts of the nephron. So angiotensin II is a very important factor. And again, during any traumatic procedure, uh, we have to be alert to what might be happening what, to the renal angiotensin system and whether that renal angiotensin system is causing undue <coughs> vas vasoconstriction. Moving on to uh, endothelial factors that may influence autoregulation and may also cause direct vasodilation. The endothelial cells lining the, 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 the blood vessels throughout the body, in particular, uh, very responsive in the uh, arterial system. And if you, um, if, you, if you, here, let go for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. If you push and hold yeah. until you see the light, then okay. it'll work. Until you see the light. Until you see the light. Right. So here's the endothelial cell. They respond to various forces within the blood vessels, in particular, shear stress. And a, uh, and a number of other factors through insulin, I mean through uh, receptors. And that, uh, that endothelial cell, those endothelial cells may release nitric oxide, uh, can also release various prostanoids, various factors of the prostaglandin system. And uh, under normal conditions, it can primarily release vasoconstrictor, vasodilating factors such as nitric oxide. Uh, but under conditions of uh, pathophysiology, it may uh, switch to release constricting factors. And those constricting factors then may cause undue vasoconstriction to the kidney. So you can see again that it's, that it's a complicated system that's not, that, that has to be studied for a specific set of conditions. This, as I mentioned, the prostaglandin system may be a very important aspect, also causing regulation. And, 
And we, we, there's, there's, important, uh, there's important components of the prostaglandin system, or the arachidonic acid metabolite system, more correctly, in the sense that uh, through uh, the phospholipase A2 that releases arachidonic acid from the membranes may either be processed through the cyclooxygenase enzymes, which are, of course, very, very important, but also through the cytochrome P450 enzymes and lipoxygenase systems. Um, the cyclooxygenase systems, as you know, uh, include both uh, uh, COX-1 and COX-2 enzymes, which, uh, which are very important in, uh, in, in, in causing inflammation in certain conditions, and that's why uh, these medicines that are cyclooxygenase inhibitors are so important. But it can also, under normal conditions, cause the release of vasodilator hormones, which uh, compensate for excess vasoconstriction uh, and cause vasodilation. But, uh, but, but the system is, is really complex because of this. The system is really complex because, because uh, it can also cause, uh, through thromboxane synthase, vasoconstrictor hormones that may be more uh, in, involved, again, during hypertension or pathophysiology. So uh, ser several of the products of the cytochrome P450 uh, either cause can cause either vasodilation or vasoconstriction. And so there's individuals that just simply concentrate the research just on this system alone. And then you also have the lipoxygenase system that may be a little bit less important in the kidney, but also can be associated with the release of, of uh, substances, metabolites, that cause renal vasoconstriction. Um, while, while it's, it's somewhat, sorry, somewhat general, the, uh, one can think of it in, in normal physiology. Uh, normal physiology, you primarily have a protective effect of the prostaglandin system. Pathophysiology, you might start engaging the pathophysiological influence of metabolites, which cause excess vasoconstriction and excess reabsorption rate. So again, the, the products of uh, the arachidonic acid metabolism may be very important in regulating uh, blood flow through the kidney. Um, a good example of what happens, uh, this was done uh, in, 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 uh, under, in patients with uh, sodium depleted and sodium depleted and sodium replete conditions. If you have plenty of body fluid, extracellular volume is normal, your uh, total amount of solium, uh, sodium in the body is normal. Uh, that we call a sodium replete condition. If you take a, a, a drug that blocks uh, the cyclooxygenase, which we call a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, uh, not much will happen either to GFR or to renal blood flow. You'll have a small effect because you're blocking a, a slight vasodilator effect of, of prostaglandins. On the other hand, if you're in a sodium depleted condition, extracellular fluid volume depletion or low volume or pathophysiological conditions, and you take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, you may have substantial decreases in blood flow and substantial decreases in GFR. So this, again, is something we want to uh, protect against in, in patients, protect against the seeing, having patients uh, be uh, excessive, uh, have too much of a decrease in in volume, become, become sodium depleted, or, or during hemorrhage, shock, other conditions, you might activate the, uh, you might activate renal vasoconstrictor signals, uh, stimuli, and, and, and uh, 
if you take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug under those conditions, you might have a, a larger than you would expect decrease in blood flow and GFR. Then we also have uh, a, a, a number of other hormones. I'm going to use the atrial peptide as an example, uh, but there are other hormones released in other parts of the body. But this is a very good example of how the heart speaks to the kidney. There are, uh, we, know, we know that in, the, um, that in the atrium of the heart, you have atrial stretch receptors that have a, well, atrial uh, natriuretic peptide. That responds to intrathoracic blood volume. So if intrathoracic blood volume is, uh, is high, you have a stimulus of the, uh, a, a certain amount of atrial stretch, which will cause release of atri atrial natriuretic peptide. And atrial natriuretic peptide will go to cause vasodilation of the vasculature within the kidney, the decreased vascular resistance. Uh, it will also cause a inhibition of aldosterone, inhibition of renin release, and thereby cause a decrease in tubular sodium reabsorption, which collectively, not a, the decreased vascular resistance as well as the, as well as the other non-vascular effects of atrial natriuretic peptide will allow you to have an increase in sodium excretion which will restore your extracellular fluid volume and blood volume back to normal. However, if the volume is too high, you have the increased natresis, and you'll bring the, the blood volume back down. If the intrathoracic blood volume is low, you, you'll restore, you'll, you'll inhibit the atrial natriuretic peptide, and you'll, re, and you'll uh, have more retention of salt and water. And then, of course, what must be considered is our, our renal, uh, renal nerve effects. Uh, there's many different examples of this, but uh, just to show you in this cartoon, uh, when you have high levels of either circulating epinephrine levels or high levels of renal sympathetic tone, you'll have vascular constriction of, the, of both the preglomerular and postglomerular vessels. But we know there's a lot more vascular smooth muscle in the preglomerular vessels and likewise, therefore, they'll cause more decrease in uh, diameter, uh, increase in resistance of these preglomerular vessels, causing a decrease in glomerular pressure, leading to decreases in filtration rate, uh, and as well as decreases in blood flow. And here's an example uh, caused by laboratory stimulation uh, of, of renal nerves, showing that this is the, uh, the uh, segmental vascular resistance. This is the preglomerular resistance here. Preglomerular resistance here, and uh, initially both preglomerular and postglomerular resistance increased to about the same extent, leading to uh, to combined decreases in blood flow and GFR. But then you have, uh, as you increase the uh, nerve stimulation, the preglomerular resistance ex exceeds the postglomerular resistance, leading to a greater decrease in GFR than you do blood flow. Again, uh, factors that have to be considered in any kind of pathophysiological condition such as might occur uh, in cardiopulmonary bypass. Here's an example of what might happen during hemorrhage from an interesting study that was produced uh, not too long ago. You have high, for in, in regard to hem in response to hemorrhage, you'll have, of course, a decrease in blood pressure, and you have then um, the carotid sinus, aortic arch reflexes, causing a marked increase in activity of the renal sympathetic nervous system. Uh, this can cause direct renal secretion. The decrease of arterial pressure can cause the increased renal secretion. That can lead to increases in plasma and intrarenal renin. 
which can increase plasma and intrarenal angiotensin II levels, which can constrict the renal arterioles, and that combined with the increase in sympathetic tone can cause a marked decrease in blood flow in GFR, which can cause a marked decrease in sodium excretion, and uh, uh, there's also uh, associated effects to increase, enhance the efficiency of, of tubular salt reabsorption. And collectively, then, you have marked decrease in sodium excretion uh, uh, by the kidneys. So you, 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 uh, you can ex expect to have a marked decrease. Uh, the body's trying to have a maximum retention of whatever salt and water is present, is still present in the body. And so you have signals then causing uh, marked decreases in urine flow, marked decreases in sodium excretion, and conservation of body fluid volumes. So these are the many ways that uh, we can go back to what Dr. Starling said, that uh, the kidneys uh, have a sensibility to do the right thing. And uh, something that uh, Dr. Moberg said many years ago, uh, we, know that, uh, we know that the kidney knows how to regulate salt and water balance, but we do not. Uh, just uh, uh, f finishing up, I, I do want to mention, uh, I, I get more and more interested in what happens to uh, body function, physiology with aging, uh, and you can see that even in normal, even under normal situations, uh, we know that there's a certain amount of uh, increase in pressure, uh, increases in uh, systolic arterial pressure that occurs with aging, uh, and uh, along with that, there's uh, decreases in GFR. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's okay. Just do that, and then yeah, right. push and hold. And uh, there is a progressive decrease in creatinine clearance uh, uh, as uh, an individual ages. Uh, that may be caused by both physiology and pathophysiology, but we know that in general it occurs uh, in the population. And so we have to be alert to what happens to uh, kidney function in, in older patients. Uh, and remembering that you have to uh, recognize that the older patients may be much more sensitive to alterations uh, because they probably have a lower initial uh, creatinine clearance or glomerular filtration rate. So, um, sorry about that. Yeah. No, that's all right. So we've gone through a lot. I, I understand it completely. We've gone through a lot. And just simply to reiterate to everybody, we have tubular glomerular feedback and autoregulation is a very important mechanism for altering filtered load and... Uh, uh, and to maintain, maintaining balance uh, with metabolically determined tubular reabsorption processes. And uh, the tubular feedback mechanism will maintain GFR renal blood flow under normal conditions uh, during physiological regulations in arterial pressure. Uh, this can occur during sleep, during moderate exercise, and other conditions. We have the importance of the renin-angiotensin system which can alter the level of hemodynamic function in accord with the status of sodium balance, can stimulate sodium reabsorption, increases the sensitivity of the tubular feedback mechanism, and reduces renal blood flow and GFR. Then you have the prostaglandin systems, which are certainly one of the most complex systems in the body. They can activate both vasoconstrictor and vasodilator systems, but under Physiological conditions and may partially counteract the actions of angiotensin II. And then you have the myriad of, of neural and adrenergic uh, input that might occur from uh, both the uh, activation of the uh, 
sympathetic nervous system as well as the uh, uh, adrenergic system from the medulla of the, of the adrenal gland, uh, which can uh, cause uh, a certain amount of interaction with overall need to maintain sodium balance and then to respond immediately to uh, serious emergency conditions. Um, I can't imagine under cardiopulmonary bypass, which, which that, don't, that would not be considered a serious uh, emergency condition. Uh, with the students, with the medical students, we usually give them what performance objectives, and I, I just have this listed. I'm not going to go through them, but these are the sort of things that we've discussed, uh, or at least I've discussed over the period of the last hour and a half or so, and I hope that it provides us with a, a better um, working, uh, working model of, of how things might go wrong in the kidney uh, under various conditions, uh, in particular cardiopulmonary bypass. Thank you very much for listening. I pre uh, thank you very much. I'm open to any questions you might have uh, that may clarify any of the issues I described. That was uh, awesome, but I just need to ask if I can. We're going to start with uh, Jim. Um, do, do we get a nephrology license now? <laughs> just the beginning. Just, this is just the beginning, just the which, beginning. Scare, which, the really, beginning. which really frightens me. Yeah. Um, we have a... Uh, I've been trying to keep up, and we have a lot of online questions, um, but I need to uh, defer, if I can, please, to Jim. Jim, you want to kick us off here? You've been uh, patiently waiting there. I wish you were here with us. We have an extra seat. But uh, let me let you kick it off with any questions you may have or any of your students may have asked you, and then uh, I can move on to the online questions and maybe Kimberly as well there. Okay, great, Joe. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Navarre, what a fantastic review. What a, a fantastic presentation. Um, I think all of us out here, we sometimes need to press the reset button and go over some things that we may have forgotten. We not for a while, and we need to review this. So um, thank you very much for that talk. Um, a couple of things. Um, when we sit behind a pump and we're thinking about the, the optimal pressure, the optimal flow, and what struck me, my first question that I would have to come up with would be... Hold on. Uh, we, we lost okay. your voice. Yeah, we lost okay. the How about sound. Now? I can't, we can't hear him anymore. Hello, hello. Hello, 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 hello. No, but we can't hear him. Hello, hello, how about now, how about now? <laughs> he's, he's talking, we can't hear him. How about now? Yes. Anything yeah. now? You, yes, now can we hear me can now? hear you. Yes. <laughs> can you hear me now? Can you hear yes. me now? <laughs> yes. Did you hear anything I said? Yes, about the first two words. <laughs> You know, you were right at that. You were you were right at the point. You were gonna. Uh, you were talking uh, about perfusion. behind the pump and perfusion pressure. Okay. Yes. Um, you've given us reason to think about the pressures and the flows. But my question to you is: Is there an optimal prime, an optimal uh, optimal solutions that we should put into the heart heart lung machine before we go on bypass? Uh, I know a lot of us use mannitol, albumin, 
um, along with the heparin and the bicarb and the plasmolite. Uh, as far as you know, is there an optimal prime solution to, to, to protect and to benefit the kidney? Well, I think what you said is important. You, you really want you to mimic the extracellular fluid concentration and composition to the best extent that you can. Obviously, you can't put every last thing that's in that. But you want to have, certainly you want to maintain an adequate osmotic pressure. Because without that osmotic pressure, you, you won't maintain the blood in the, vas in, in the, in the vasculature. Uh, so, uh, w with albumin, uh, you want to be able to make sure that the albumin concentrations are at least as high as they are in, in normal conditions. Uh, and perhaps maybe even higher because you're, you're probably diluting the other uh, larger uh, proteins such as globulins and fibrinogen, which, which, which play a, a reasonably significant part of the total osmotic pressure. So, you got to make up for that with albumin. Um, now, if the, if the integrity of the capillary membranes is damaged, then you might not be able to maintain the osmotic pressure, but, but you want to try. So you have to have an adequate osmotic pressure and then mimic the extracellular fluid composition to the best extent possible uh, within practical limits. Mm -hmm. That's okay, a, which... Go ahead, Jim, I'm sorry. Which leads me question. to... Well, which leads me to... And... Sometimes we operate on patients who that morning have come from home who are relatively healthy. Other times we've, we've operated on patients who've been in the ICU for two weeks, who are decompensated uh, in some way. So it almost seems like you need to tailor your prime, you need to tailor every technique that we do based on our patient situation. Would yes. you agree? Yes. In particular, some patients in, in the ICU may be hyponatremic. You want to be sure that uh, you don't cause uh, changes in sodium concentration. For example, if the patient is, is substantially hyponatremic and has been that way for several days or even weeks, uh, and you hit it with a normal isotonic uh, saline solution, it may be hypernatremic for that patient and may cause cell swelling, for example. So, I'm sorry, cell cell. Uh, cell constrictions, uh, cell volume decrease. So you wanna, you wanna make sure that, the, what, that you match the sodium balance um, of the patient, but I would agree that you, you wanna be able to, to take into consideration what the situation is for the specific patient being, uh, being evaluated at the time. Now, I know this is okay. mostly neurologic, in, but bringing uh, to your point, Jim, and, and uh, referring to that, if you do have somebody who is hyponatremic, you do have to be concerned about over correcting it too rapidly for yes. demyelination mm -hmm. syndrome, which right. would be Absolutely. lethal. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, so that's a that is a, a a real concern that we you know look and see if this patient has significant hyponatremia that we not just correct it back to normal that we manage that in a more appropriate way that's right that's right that that's an uh, uh, that's quite an important area and and no matter uh, it, it's so often you hear about situations where patients in particular that, that were not in, in, in hospitalized they were ambulatory but taking long-term um 
diuretics and might cause hyponatremia, and the patient had completely adapted to that condition of hyponatremia, uh, and then uh, somebody thought that they better correct it, uh, and they correct it as they would be correcting acute hyponatremia. So uh, that can cause a serious, as you said, a, a ne neurological situation. Yes. Irreparable yes. sometimes. Yeah, because people, like, for myself, like myself, many people have SIADH, and they're chronically hyponatremic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I walk around, you know, I, I walk, you know, they're always telling me, you know, your sodium, wanting to recheck my sodium. No, it's okay. I have SIADH. I'm used. It's fine. I'm adapted to it. But my sodium, if I were to be admitted to the critical care unit, they would replace my sodium. And that could be bad. Right. But they would likely do it, depending on what hospital I go to, likely in a way that is consistent with the gradual uh, oh, well, replacement. Okay. Do it, you know, versus acutely. But if you go someplace that doesn't know or doesn't mm. just isn't thinking, I mean, that is, uh, like I said, that could be elite. And for us, we, we prime our pumps way in advance of the time we ever see our patient. We see the patient for the first time. We usually see the chart for the first time. When the patient rolls into the operating room, the pump's already primed and ready mm. to go. And if you're using plasma light, you have a more normal sodium level, about 140. But if you're using sodium chloride, which many people do use, now you have a sodium of 154. Ooh. So that's, you know, going to be uh, it's a big salt load. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that is something that we, I think, could do a lot better job at is knowing our patients uh, ahead of time. We generally do not. Like I told you, the thing, whole reason we're doing this kidney thing, um, and I do want to get to these questions. Please forgive me. I know there's been a lot of questions that have come over online. Uh, Magic, just out of curiosity, what is our total viewership right now? Three fifty. So, and I can't answer. I can't ask all of the questions, but I'm going to ask. Thank you, Magic. I'm going to try to get to the ones. But that is a, what Jim just said is a question that get, got brought up uh, with several other people, and that is on the albumin level. Um, there's a big debate on whether to add albumin to the pump, not al add albumin to the pump, mm -hmm. treat. Uh, hypoalbuminemia, not treat hypoalbuminemia, treat it aggressively, don't treat it aggressively. And not only do we have very typically hypoalbumic states, we are also hemodiluting the red blood cells, which is our strongest uh, oncotic uh, pressure contributor. So we get a double whammy, anemia and hypoalbuminemia on top of it. So, and then dilution of the, as you said, the other large uh, proteins like globulin and so forth. And it's a huge problem. How much does that affect what Jim is talking about and what we're doing and what should we, you know, how is that going to make the, the, renal, the, the renal function perioperatively and postoperatively, how is it gonna affect it? Well, I mean, the bottom line is if you don't maintain the colonotomotic pressure, you're going to lose volume to the interstitial spaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I guess you can tolerate a certain amount of that that occurs and we're going to normal correct in a patient following surgery. 
but, but if it's too much, you're going to have trouble maintaining blood pressure for one ring because the, the tissue, and, and you're going to really swell up not only in the kidney, but you're going to swell up the interstitial spaces throughout the body. You could cause uh, excessive pressure in the brain as well, even though it's not intracellular. Um, I think there's a lot of potential uh, deleterious consequences of, of not having an adequate colon osmotic pressure. I think that's that says it all. That says that says it all. Jim, did you have a follow up or another question? No, no. Just very simply, uh, for me personally, there's nothing worse than doing a long case, and after the case, you pull the drapes back, and the patient is really swollen. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing that that makes me feel worse than that. And so, knowing that, if they're swollen on the outside, you know they're swollen on the inside. And so, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think we need to take a step back and reevaluate some of, of the things we do. But by the same token, we're only a link in the chain between anesthesia, the surgeon, the time of operation itself. So I think we're all out there doing the best that we can with what we have. And so that's why I think this is important that we can actually sit and, and discuss things like this. Now, now, that can be partially counteracted by having a lower pressure, a lower perfusion pressure to the tissues. I don't know how low the, the perfusion pressures go uh, to the tissues, but, but of course, if you lower the perfusion pressure, then you, then you have a problem with blood flow, blood flow through the various tissues, including the kidney, being too low and, and, and not having enough oxygen delivery. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so you can't lower the blood pressure too low, Certainly shouldn't lower it much below what we consider the, the, the lower level of autoregulation. Yeah, very good point. So, so what you're saying is, make sure I understand this correctly, you're saying that you can reduce, and I'm assuming it's through, I, I guess it's through, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly the mechanism, but if you have a lower oncotic pressure, that if you lower your blood pressure, you will develop less edema? That would be, I would predict that. You would predict that. But you have low, low less But you blood, can only go have, so low, you have right? Low blood flow. It'd be better to have high blood flow, high de uh, oxygen delivery. <laughs> yes. At least, yeah. What would be better, of course, my view is I'd rather have luxurious blood flow versus <laughs> inadequate blood flow of any level. Mm -hmm. I would think that that would be better. Kimberly, any questions? Mm -mm, not yet. No? Okay, well, we have several questions from online, and one of them actually uh, is, is, is uh, somewhat tied to what you just asked. Uh, one of our physician uh, uh, partners is asking if, the, if there is a capillary opening pressure of the kidney similar to that of the brain. Oh, like yield, yield pressure. As far as I know, it would be at a very low blood, at a very low pressure. I'm, I'm, if there's been no flow, that would be more probably involved in when you're doing kidney transplants, where you're where you're starting out with, like essentially no flow to the kidneys, and then uh, yes, you would have to exceed what they call yield pressure. Um, but that's at, that's at the pressures that are fairly low, lower. In the, in the lowest range of autoregulation. And, and once you overcome that yield pressure, you, you would do it. I, I've never actually studied that particular aspect, uh, but I think that, the, the, that there would be uh, that, that. But if, 
If there's never been complete cessation of blood flow to the kidneys, I think uh, you, you probably just simply want to maintain that blood pressure high enough so you're, uh, you're within the autoregulatory range. You could say be at the lowest level of the autoregulatory range, but it's still good to be within the range, autoregulatory range. So this person has a follow-up question, and it is uh, that they understood your point about the kidney transplant. But what about type 1 dissections where circulatory arrest is used, profound hypothermia, circulatory arrest, and then you, uh, so you have no blood flow whatsoever uh, to the kidneys for some period of time and then reestablish it. Uh, their question is, what is that, as you said, yield pressure? I don't know the actual number, but it's in the low. It's in the low area, maybe, maybe 15, 15 millimeters. So pretty low, by, 15, 20 yeah, yeah, in that rate. Yeah, okay, yeah, so that range. is very low. So, so once you, that once answered you, once that you question. establish blood pressure of 50, 60 or higher. 50 uh, or 60, or are you saying 15? No, 50 or 60. 50 you, or you, you 60, know, so but, you really have to get, so you well, can't just run around at a pressure of 30 as you're reestablishing blood flow. You've got to get that pressure up to get the kidneys perfused. Uh, that would happen whether there's yield pressure, so whether there's a yield pressure or not, because you're just not going to have that much blood flow when you're down there. Remember, the blood pressure at the, below the autoregulatory range, the blood flow is directly related to the pressure. The lower okay. the pressure, the lower the blood flow. Okay. Uh, and you're not likely to have vasodilatory agents in play under those conditions, so you might not do it. I was going to do the auto regulations. Uh, we could go to that auto regulation. Um, you want to draw? Uh, do you know where it is? I think I have. Um, um, you want to just review all your slides? Hold on, I'm almost there. I'm sorry, right here. So can, if you... Uh, can we go to slides? There you go. So I want to do yellow. You want yellow? Yeah, whatever, yeah. So let me tap well, up. That's uh, fine. No, I, I can make it yellow for this you. This is here. fine. Here, yellow. You can there. have... Uh, you want to do it? Uh-huh, it's yellow. You can have factors that uh, increase uh, the, the plateau of autoregulation. So you have this situation occur. Uh, something like... When you, when you have increased levels of nitric oxide, I think uh, you, you can show that there is a, a, an increase in, in, in blood flow, but you still don't disrupt autoregulation. On the other hand, you can get vasodilation that opens up not only the plateau, but also the lower portion of the curve. You still have autoregulation, but it might be over here. For example, that might, might occur under conditions where you have uh, marked uh, reductions in the activity of the renal angiotensin system. Uh, so if you have blood flow, if you have vasodilation that uh, increases the blood flow at the lower pressures, that can, that can give you some benefit. Uh, but this is usually not the case. Once you get, but you still have a dependence of the blood flow on the pressure, regardless of the situation at the lower pressures. If you have excessive vasoconstriction, you'll have vasoconstriction at both the lower pressures as well as the plateau autoregulatory levels. Or you can have what occurs maybe in acute, acute, acute you know, failure where you have no autoregulation. 
where you have uh, a lot of a lot of vasoconstriction going on, or uh, injury that is non-hemodynamically determined, that is, such as cell swelling, uh, that markedly increases the uh, increases the resistance uh, through through damage to the cells, and and that in, in various types of acute renal failure, ischemic acute renal failure, you can have then no autoregulation at all, or maybe autoregulation that pressures way beyond the physiological range. Okay. I hope that answered that, that question. Um, and uh, this is another very good question. With, uh, with the atrial natriuretic peptide, um, because the bypass is, has the heart completely empty and your stretch receptors are no longer there, what effect does that loss of stimulus have on the kidney during the bypass period when the heart, actually you stole, they're stealing one of my slides, okay, <laughs> which makes me mad because you're asking a question that I actually address in my slide. So, but I think it's a reasonable question well, to ask now and then address again. Right, there's, there's, there's no direct connection between the right atrium and the circulation, the bypass circulation. So there's no release of atrial natriuretic peptide regardless of the situation. Uh, so, for example, uh, but, but you wouldn't, with low pressure to the atrial stretch receptors, there wouldn't be any release of AMP anyway. Um, but does that make the kidney believe that you are in a shock hypovolemic state? Yes. And then react accordingly and not produce urine? Because one of the things we see very frequently on bypass is no urine output during bypass, but when we come off bypass and the atrium fills back up again, they start diuresing. Mm -hmm. That would be a factor. I don't know what the quantitative role of that factor would be, but that would be a factor. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you have to integrate it to all the other mechanisms that may be either causing sodium retention or during recovery, allowing for a reestablishment of urine flow and sodium excretion. Very good. Okay. Um, I, do we have time for one? I have one more question from the audience. I don't want to, and then we'll move into uh, Dr. Tabby's talk. Uh, and it has to do with another point that I have in one of my talks, and that is the loss of pulsatility. And the, uh, this is a perfusionist that asked that total artificial hearts today are designed to be continuous flow pumps, generally not pulsatile. Um, and patients go on to live with total artificial heart for a long time. Uh, is there a, uh, an adaption that occurs with the uh, perfusion of the kidney? Does it have to be pulsatile, or how long does it take to adapt to a continuous flow pump? There's been studies from time to time um, on trying to understand the, the particular influence that might occur between uh, depend, which are dependent on the pulsatility of the pressure, and, and there's never been a, there's never been a definitive study showing that that the pulsations or the pulsatility are, are, are absolutely important uh, to maintain uh, uh, normal function, uh, but but there are some some side issues. Uh, for example, the, the fact whether the pulsations are able to keep uh, various, you know, sticky molecules such as uh, the, the leukocytes, uh, lymphocytes that may stick to the uh, to the endothelium uh, more readily 
in the absence of pulsations. Um, there may be certain things, but the afferent arterioles, to a very large extent, damp out a large amount of, a significant amount of, of the pulsation. So that beyond the afferent arterioles, uh, flow in, in, in at least in mammalian kidneys is relatively steady. Um, there, the pulsations re are reduced to something like five or ten millimeters of mercury. Um, so. It's, it's a factor, but I don't think it's a major factor. I think the hemodilution, the low temperature, low pressure, um, and I don't know what all else, and perhaps low colon osmotic pressure would be probably more important factors than the pulsations per se, but um, the, there, there are some areas related to the autoregulatory mechanism since you respond primarily to the magnitude of the systolic pressure. If, there's a, if, the, if the pulse pressure increases substantially, it looks like the autoregulatory mechanism responding to the systolic pressure. It's trying to prevent excessive pressure going into the glomerulocapillary, so it responds to the systolic pressure. So when you have, but that would be under conditions of excessive uh, pulsatility, not mm -hmm. lack of pulsatility. As in so, hypertension or something yeah. like that. So probably without more detail knowledge of, of, of that, it, it probably would not be considered among the most important factors. Very good. Okay. I, and I think that's it. We're gonna, we can't ask her any more questions here. I'll have some, we'll have some later when we have our general discussions.